I think I'll begin in the sort of very general sense of what the Tablighi Jamaat is, um, what their particular form, this is a preaching movement, what their particular form of preaching is, um, how they go about preaching, and then we'll move into sort of questions. And I actually want more to have a conversation about the context of Corona and the fact that the Tablighi Jamaat has been in the news quite a bit recently. Um, in, in in the context of the corona pandemic, in the context as a kind of vector for the spread um, for the spread of uh, COVID nineteen, um, and I want to talk a little bit. I'll talk a little bit about that, but I also want to hear thoughts and questions about that. Um, so I'll do the broad overview uh, first. Um, I, I do have a, a PowerPoint. I think I'll go ahead and share that. It'll make it easier, I think, for everyone to follow. Um, so. Um, so the Tablighi Jamaat is a transnational Islamic piety movement. Um, it's a preaching movement. Um, many scholars consider it to be the largest Islamic movement in the world. Um, millions and millions of people attend its annual congregations, um, the largest of which are in, the, uh, in its four major sites. One is Pakistan, uh, Raiwan, Pakistan. One is in uh, near New, New Delhi. Um, in India, one is in Bangladesh, and one is in England. So these are these mass congregations, I'll, I'll have more to say about the mass congregations um, that happen in these key sites, annual congregations, where millions of people, uh, literally, I mean, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people attend these congregations. Um, some of them are so large that they've been split up. I mean, it's a, it's a massive tent city um, that, that uh, happens annually in Pakistan, uh, where I've attended multiple times. Um, so there are many people who consider the Tabi Jamaat to be one of the fastest, if not the, the uh, one of the largest, if not one of the, uh, the largest uh, Islamic movement in the world. Um, so Tabi Jamaat was founded in the 1920s in North India. Um, and it was uh, founded by a man named Muhammad Ilyas. He was an alim trained in the Darul Uloom Madrasa in the town of Diab which is in the town of Dioband in North India. Um, the, the, the ulama of this madrasa are called the Diobandi ulama. Um, this is now uh, not just associated with one madrasa, but an entire tradition that spans um, South Asia and has spread across the world through South Asian proselytizing and preaching. Um, the Diobandi ulama were sort of the epicenter under, under late, uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. They became the epicenter for efforts to in, in South Asia to purify Islam of practices that were deemed custom. So practices that were seen as not quite fitting with the original Islam of the Prophet Muhammad, um, departures of the original Islam of the Prophet, uh, from, uh, from the original Islam of the Prophet Muhammad. And it was kind of an effort to return to that Islam, to go back to what is pure, what is real Islam, as it's located in the sacred scriptural sources, the Quran, the, lit the Hadith literature, and the uh, interpretations of that by the ulama, um, by the scholars of Islam. So. Uh, uh, scholars, uh, historians of South Asia call this effort to purify Islamic revive, uh, life and revive the original Islam of the uh, Quran and Prophet, they call this Islamic reform. Okay? But really it means eliminating those aspects of the tradition that the ulama deemed to be outside influences or, or even internal corruptions. 
most of this has to do, most of these influences have to do with uh, association with uh, our practices associated with with Sufism, um, particularly the veneration of saints um, and the sort of idea that you can go to a saint um, and to a, a, a darga, a, a, a saint uh, shrine, or a, 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 and and ask uh, or a mausoleum and ask for a saint, ask a saint to intervene or intercede between you and God. Okay. This was, these are popular practices that have existed in South Asia for a very long time. They were practices integral to the, to the functioning of the Mughal Empire. We're not going to get too much into that history, um, but I'm happy to suggest if anybody is interested in any of these points I bring up, I'm, I, I'm happy to suggest um, some further read, readings. So the Diobandi ulama wanted to eliminate most of these practices, okay? Um, particularly the idea that a human being of any kind could stand between a person and God. That there's somebody other than God who, who, should, who you should turn to for anything, essentially, right? So there's sort of really strong effort. This is, uh, was central to Diobandi ulama's ideas about Islam, and it was picked up by the Tablighi Jamaat as an extension of the ulama's ideas. Okay. Now, uh, this was a sort of time uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th centuries, a time when Muslims were really trying to figure out, um, figure out how to live under, the, under a non-Muslim sovereign, um, the British sovereignty, um, and uh, under colonial rule. So as many of you know, in 1857, uh, in 1858, after the mutiny, the British establish um, the formal um, uh, empire. They establish a direct rule through the crown over, over the Indian subcontinent. And in that, Muslims come to sort of, there's a sudden revival of, of investment in this idea that Muslims need to return to this original Islam with the Prophet. Okay. So the Tablighi Jamaat comes out of that, okay? And much of it was focused on preaching to people um, that the Tablighi saw as too influenced by local Indian customs or by what they saw as Hindu customs, okay? So they saw much of the practices associated with Sufism, particularly the veneration of saints, the idea that you can go to a saint to ask for, um, any kind of, yeah, so that you can ask for any kind of boon in the form of health, healing, uh, uh, fertility, um, anything that you would go to a saint rather than directly to God. This was uh, something that was cast as a, a problem that Muslims had developed from Hinduism, a problem of idolatry and idol worship and so on. So Tablighi's, uh, so Muhammad Ilyas believed um, that what was needed was for old Muslims, Muslims who had more refined practices, Muslims who were closer to the, the original Islam of the Prophet, to preach to what he saw as low caste Muslims. Um, and those people who were corrupted in a sense by popular practices, um, again, associated with saint, uh, saint worship um, and attached to Hinduism, okay? So for Ilyas, the key was that Muslims should, that pious Muslims should learn the proper Islam of the Prophet, um, what he learned, for instance, in Madrasas, and then spread this 
to other Muslims who had corrupted ideas about Islam and so on. Okay. So what was interesting though about uh, Ilyas's ideas was that he said that giving Dawud, that is to, to Dawud simply means to invite, um, to preach. Um, it means the word tabligh means to convey that is to convey the proper form of Islam to those who do not have it. This was the central mission of the Tabi'i Dimat. Um, for Elias, giving Dawat, giving this invitation was not only to spread Islam to others, which of course, as I noted, it was important for that, but, but he also believed that in spreading Islam to others, one, this, the preacher himself would then adopt and assume the proper forms of Islam. It was a form of cor self-correction. Okay? In the process of giving Dawat, uh, the Tablighi would end up not only helping others, but strengthening his own faith, okay? and, and thus becoming a more and more pious Muslim. So this practice was not just for others, but it was for the self. It was not just Islamic reform, but it was self-reform. And Islam, you know, the way that it was conceptualized was a kind of discipline. You know, the lower self is this sort of space inside of a person that is the seat of bodily desires, bodily uh, 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 and, and, and sort of worldly desire. Um, and the spirit, that part of a human being that's more attached to God, that comes from God, um, so the lower self has to be disciplined because if it's not disciplined, it, it leads people away from the path of God. So the idea was that Dawat, in, in preaching to others, um, a person would be disciplining themselves in the process and in the process they would themselves become um, more pious Muslims. Okay, So I'm not going to read all of this. I'm just, you know, I, this is basically what I just said. Self-reform is really key. Um, I was told in my own research that, that Dawat is designed not, so it's a type of reform, Islam, correction of the self, but it's also designed to grow one's faith. Okay, so in giving Dawat to others, one's own faith grows, one's faith in God, one's connection to God through the example of the prophet. So the, the key idea that the Bligis believe is that the, the way that we preach to others is in the form of the prophet himself. The prophet did this type of preaching at a time when there were no Muslims. He went around to preach to other people. And in the process of replicating and mimicking the prophet's example, one cultivates and creates the faith. They talk about the way that passion and desire fill the heart of the tablighi to fulfill his own religious duties. Okay? So by giving Dawat on the virtues of a specific practice, go to the mosque and pray, by saying this to others in the process of Dawat, one feels that one compelled and, uh, to do it oneself. Okay? I talk about this in my work as moral responsibility. The idea of moral responsibility Davit is a practice that cultivates moral responsibility. When you tell other people to go to the mosque, you want to go to the mosque yourself. When you tell other people that they should uh, fast, you, you want to fast yourself and so on, okay? Okay, so 
this is all sometimes Tablighi is described Dawit, not just as a practice of Islam that gives birth to faith, but as the sort of mother of practices. If you you can think about that metaphorically, mother gives birth to practice. And so the idea is that if you do Dawit, you will do all the other practices also. Okay. Here's, for instance, a quote. Um, a young man who was clean shaven, I'm gonna, I, I think this quote is, really brings home the point, so I'll, I'll, I will read it here. Um, a young man who was clean shaven was going to Canada for studies and he was worried about his own faith, you know, so you're going to a non-Muslim environment. So he decided to go visit the Imam of his mosque to ask what he should do to not lose his faith. Imam Saab, I am very worried that I will go abroad and be drawn away from Islam. What should I do to protect my faith? Without hesitation, the Imam said, spend time with Muslims and give Dawit to others. Invite them to come to the mosque for prayers. The young man agreed. A few years later, the young man returned to his mosque and the Imam was very pleased to see him. The man now had a beard and wore his pant legs above his ankles. This is in the example of the Prophet. He had become pious. The Imam asked, if he had remembered to give Dawat and the young man nodded. What happened? The Imam inquired. The young man replied, I felt uncomfortable at first, but because I had made a commitment, I continued to do it. Did anyone ever come to the mosque? Asked the Imam. The man replied, no, not many, but I began praying five times a day and the rest you can see. Okay. So the idea here is that that in, in the preaching act, the man himself became a pious person in the model of the prophet. Now, Dawud is interesting. I, I, this is why I started studying Dawud in this particular form. There are many kinds of Dawud. There's television preaching, there's internet preaching, there's radio preaching. There, has, there are all forms in Muslim countries, as many of you will probably know. There are many, many forms of preaching. Many of them take the form of Dawat. I've heard even political parties say that our basic function is Dawat. Our basic function is bringing people to Islam. But for Tablighis, what's really key is the form of Islam. That's very important. Form of Dawat. That is, it should replicate the example of the Prophet. Because it's a sacred practice. So just like the Prophet was told how we should pray, so similarly, we were told how to give Dabat. Okay. Uh, in some examples, in some, some testimonies, the form of Dabat came to Muhammad Ilyas in the form of a, uh, in, in a dream. So it was bestowed on him as a divine gift. So it is not an arbitrary practice. You can't just do it any way you want to do it. It must be done more or less in the way that the prophet did it. Now, the first premise of this, the first condition for its efficacy is seen as face-to-face -face preaching. The Bligis say that when, when one does face-to-face -face preaching, this creates a heart-to-heart -heart connection between Muslims and it connects one also to God. So it's in the face-to-face in the -face idea the bodily connection between Muslims and the verbal connection between Muslims, that, that that transformation of both the self and the other gets created. 
the anthropologist Brintley Messick has called this recitational logocentrism. He just means by that simply that the human voice, the, the person's voice is seen as the, the proper way to communicate the truth of Islam. The, the human voice is essential to communication. The human voice is, carries not just the message, but the force and the power okay, of the message. This is, again, I, I stress this point because this is not how all preaching works in a country like Pakistan or a country like India. There are many kinds of preaching. Okay? They stress the face-to-face -face nature of this preaching. Okay? Um, so the internet is not a useful way to do this. The internet doesn't work. Television is not a useful way to do this. Television doesn't work. In fact, the Bleegis would often tell me that when, when you hear television preaching, like a preacher, you know, Zakir Nayak or somebody on television, that only appeals to your mind. It doesn't appeal to your heart. And so it doesn't induce the passion and the desire for practice. It only appeals to the surface of the person. So one could be very clever and understand, but it doesn't make you want to live an Islamic life. That's key for tabligi understanding of Dawat. Second, Dawat requires bodily sacrifice. So tabligis believe that one one gives sacrifice of the physical, of your own life force, you pay your own way, you give your own time, when you do all of this, this gets, makes, pleases God and God facilitates your transformation. Sometimes Tablighi say that one's words become heavy. Through the bodily sacrifice, one's words become heavy. And the heaviness of the words then influence others and yourself. Okay. And the third important crucial feature is that Dawit is not an individual practice. An individual can do Dawit, but it's the collective, it's the, what they call istamayamal, it's the collective practice of Dawit that brings the force and the power to make the transfer. This is all from their perspective. This is not something I'm, I'm saying, this is how they think, right? In practice, what these conditions of efficacy of Dawit mean is that the Bligis end up traveling and living together in mosques, and they go house to house to house, inviting people to the mosque to listen to sermons, to pray, and to create a kind of social space. So the problem arises because it's face to face, Right, because the, it, the idea is about traveling, you can see why it's a problem in COVID, right? Because it's a congregating and traveling are the two key dimensions of this thing. When you live together in mosques and you spread the message of God from to face to face, Muslims come to be connected to each other and come to stand together on the good, on the basis of the Prophet's example. And the prophet and the companions and the original Islamic community. So there's this idea that in preaching face to face, in traveling together, in doing this as a collective practice, one creates the conditions uh, for moral, spiritual, and economic well-being. 
Okay. So you can see then very simply put, I don't want to take up too much time here. Um, uh, that, that, in, that here are some images. This is uh, the Karachi annual congregation of the Tablighi Jamaat. Hundreds of thousands of people travel to it. Um, and, and they live together and they pray together and they do wuzu ablutions together. Um, this is just one little section of what is effectively a massive tent city. Okay. Um, they eat together. Um, everyone brings, every mosque unit brings their own food. Um, and so it's a really uh, collective and uh, it involves a lot of close proximate living. Um, this is just the annual congregation, but this is also true in mosque spaces as well. Um, and so here's where the problem is, is that you have had, not have, I want to speak in the past terms because the political context of COVID has, I'm not doing research right now, so I, I, I've spoken to um, who I continue to talk to, um, and they say they've, of course, understood COVID and understand the problems, um, and they're offended by the idea that they don't. So I, I, I want to come back to this point, but, but you can see that if your worldview is organized around this sort of idea of face-to-face, -face, close proximate living, then this can be a problem, in, a direct problem uh, uh, in the context of COVID. Um, if you see this as the, the source of ultimate good, then what, you know, then, then it, it raises uh, the issue of whether um, and how you should go about doing this and how you should deal with the global pandemic and so on, okay. Um, Okay, so I don't have statistics. I tried to look up, there are many cases, many news articles, and I, 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 I wasn't able to really cal uh, calculate what the cases were, but cases linked to the Tablighi Jamaat have been very widespread. Um, there was a Tablighi uh, gathering. I don't know if it was in Ijtama in Indonesia, um, this, and uh, spread to Malaysia. There was one here in Pakistan. In Pakistan, I can tell you this was on March 12th. I myself was very critical of the fact that this was happening and the government was not acting. But I will also say that on March 12th in Pakistan, there was not a lot of information beyond those of us who zealously follow international media. Um, there were events going on all over the country. Um, and so Tablighi's held a major event and it was called off in the middle of the event. The government acted and said, you know, you have to go home. But by that time they had already congregated um, in Raiwind. Um, okay. So as I said, the practices of Tablighi's involved both travel, congregating and large gatherings. Um, these gatherings became hotspots for the spread of COVID. So you're traveling, then you're traveling back into your respective areas. It doesn't take much to realize that that is going to become a vector of spread. Um, it's very important, I think, to remember that um, all forms of globalization, Tablighi Jamaat is one form of globalization. All forms of globalization have been vectors for the spread of the virus. People traveling from here to there for personal reasons, for weddings. I know people who traveled to Karachi for a wedding and the wedding was became a hotspot. And so I, I think that the, 
the fact is that that religious preaching what became a vector and it became a, a, a central source and we can talk about numbers um, but um, it was at the end of the day um, one of those vectors of globalization and there were many others okay the tablighis at least that i've spoken to insist that the gatherings that happened were already planned and the preachers were already mobile so if you're traveling to raiwind from Indonesia, you're already here well before and traveling well before the virus's full scale was known. And you're living in mosques and you're moving through mosques. And so, and the markas where the, the, right, where the gathering is gonna take place, the mass gathering is the, the desti destination anyway. Um, so many Tabiqis say, you know, we were already on our, our, our path, we could, what were we supposed, we would have to travel no matter what, right? Either you would travel back to your own country. So I don't know all the legal issues that were involved and in how, how different countries closed and what consequences this had. Okay, so I just want to move in. Uh, you can see here, uh, and this uh, little image comes to me from a meme. <laughs> um, you can see here that uh, this is a, 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 a health declaration form in Malaysia. Um, you can see that the Blee is singled out. Um, have you engaged yourself in certain group activities like the Blee, church, or Taf, Tafiz? Uh, and so it's asking, uh, it's asking people to identify this activity because it is one of the ways that governments have identified that the, um, uh, that the, that the virus has spread. Okay. I want to just quickly talk about one case where the Tablighi Markas came under scrutiny and it exploded and became wrapped up in politics, um, in a way that I think is very dangerous. Um, and that's the case of India. In India, Hindu, Hindutva or Hindu nationalism has long seen Muslims as a kind of threat inside of India. Um, and COVID has really brought, brought this out. Um, you know, Indian nationalists have often set, treated Indian Muslims as if they're loyal to Pakistan, as if they're not really Indian proper, that India is, is a Hindu nation um, or primarily a Hindu nation. Um, and in India, the Tablighi Markas, not a, I don't think it was the Ijtama, it was just the, the, the Markas is just the, the, the center for the Tablighi Jamaat there, where many, many people live, thousands of people or hundreds of people at least live in the Markas, and many people travel to the Markas routinely for all kinds of activities. So the Markas, uh, many, many people travel to the Markas, maybe it was for or the, the a congregation um, there's weekly congregations that happen at the Margas um, uh, that is likely what I think was the source. Um, and many, many Tablighis were, were then, I think, infected and were seen by the Indian government as a source of the, the early spread. members And their contacts were quarantined across 15 Indian states. It may have grown. This is a number I got from a new site. Um, 
On March 8th and March 10th, this is important, religious festivals that have happened in other parts of the country, the Sikh festival, uh, Hola Mahalla, happened March 8th to March 10th. 40,000 people were quarantined. Um, but the focus really came on to the tablighis as the source of the spread. Um, the, on April 4th, the Economic Times of India stated over 95% of corona cases uh, reported over the last two days in India have been found to have links with the Tablighi Jamaat congregation. Um, but they didn't give their readers a similar breakup of, of people tested over the last two days. So there's a sort of sampling bias there. If you're only testing Tablighis, then you find more and more cases of positive of, of Tablighis. In any case, I'm, this is not a defense. There is surely some responsibility. But what happened in India is that this idea of Corona Jihad began to spread. You can see their hashtag. There was a hashtag going through India of Corona Jihad. Um, and uh, and uh, there were uh, sort of images that were circulating uh, on, in Indian news, in Indian uh, WhatsApp, in Indian Twitter, that, oh, that you can see the sort of danger, almost 60% of new corona cases in India linked to the Tablighi Jamaat event. Um, and so, right, it becomes a, a hot point um, for the spread of the virus. Um, I don't know what, I forget the newspaper this was in, but um, there's sort of this idea of, of Muslims having different types of jihad against India and Corona jihad is one type of jihad. Love jihad is this idea that Hindus uh, fall in love with them and then convert them to Islam. Um, land jihad, of course, and population jihad. All of these threats to India, uh, to India, and then you can and is not seeing how Islam is taking over in okay. very sort of panic images of fear. Okay, so there's the last thing I'll say, and we move on. Uh, we can go to the question. Pandemic uh, in India builds on a pre-existing set of fears of Muslims as pollutants, as contaminants in the body politics of India. Um, the Corona Jihad discourse turns a metaphoric association of the Muslims, so a metaphor as a contaminant or a threat into a literal association with the spread of disease and death. So you have this metaphoric idea that the Muslim is a threat, a danger in the body, but and the disease, uh, the discourse, Corona Jihad discourse means that, oh, the Muslim is not just a metaphoric threat or, or a threat to culture, but literally a physical threat um, that creates disease and death. Um, and this is in Indian news. You can see it on news, WhatsApp groups, Twitter. You can see that it's construed as a sort of deliberate effort to destroy the Hindu body and the political body of India. There were all these stories of Muslims deliberately coughing on food or coughing on, on other people and tablighis who are defecating. And just there was a lot of stories of, of deliberate efforts to contaminate other people that were circulating as a kind of panic around uh, the tablighis and then by extension, uh, Muslims in general. Just yesterday, there was a Supreme Court ruling. This is, uh, I think, a very interesting thing. And this is the last thing I would say. Uh, the Indian Supreme Court ruled yesterday. The details, I just saw this in a news article recently. So I'm not entirely sure of all the details of it, but. Um, that the 
that the Lord Jagannath Rath Yatra at Puri the, is a, a festival, an event. Um, it would be allowed. I think this also has thousands and thousands of people that come. Um, would be allowed to proceed. Um, the Indian Home Minister Amit Shah praised the Supreme Court and Prime Minister Modi, um, saying that they are ensuring that, quote, great traditions of our land are observed. So these Hindu traditions are the great traditions of the land of India, and so they're okay, but the Tablighi Jamaat is a, is, was posited as a, as a threat. So the entire nation is delighted by the decision of the Honorable Supreme Court to ensure the Ratiyatra. Okay, so that's where I will stop. I, I, want, I wanted to point to, uh, I think, what I think is a realistic understanding that the Tablighi Jamaat has been a vector for the spread because of all these things that I've said. But there's also been a kind of moral panic um, in some places that this is the unique and only spread because it's construed as a particular danger um, to the, the nation. 